Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. COVID-19 cases are once again surging in San Diego County. We're seeing a sudden increase in positivity. Uh, We're also seeing a very significant increase in hospitalizations. I'm Christina Kim with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Expect delays at San Diego Airport this week after thousands of flights are canceled. Anytime that there's cancellation or delays, it has a ripple effect, right? So, you know, we have been seeing quite a few of cancellation and delays. We hear from a man that wanted to attend 500 NFL games and succeeded. And just in time for the holidays, we're talking about the power of kindness. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. COVID-19 cases are once again on the rise in San Diego County, as is the demand for testing. In a meeting today with state governors, President Biden said more needs to be done to make sure tests are available. Seeing how tough it was for some folks to get a test this weekend shows that we have more work to do and we're doing it. And with the holidays upon us, chances are you or someone you know has stood in line for a test or tried to purchase a home kit in an effort to stop the spread and still see family and friends responsibly. Here now to help us understand how San Diego is faring with testing and the current surge, we're joined by Chris Van Gorder, the CEO of Scripps Health. Hello. Hi, good morning. Well, thank you so much for joining us. So what are we seeing in terms of COVID cases in San Diego County currently? Yeah, we saw a sudden increase in hospitalizations literally in the last four days. So to give you some sense of it, one month ago, uh, November 27th, uh, we had 75 COVID hospital hospitalized patients in our healthcare system. On the 23rd, we had 80. Um, On the 24th, Christmas Eve, we jumped by 18 admissions. On the 25th, Christmas Day, we jumped by another 20 admissions. And yesterday, um, we jumped by another 16 admissions. So literally from the 23rd, we've gone from 80 admissions to 119 admissions. 
So that's a huge increase. And we're seeing the same in testing. On the 23rd, we jumped to 26% positivity rate, which is a huge positivity rate. On the 25th, it was about 25%, and yesterday about 19%. So it's dipping a little bit. That could surge again tomorrow. So we're seeing a sudden increase in positivity. Uh, we're also seeing a very uh, significant increase in hospitalizations just in the last few days. When is your modeling showing a peak in hospitalizations? Yeah, our projections actually showed an, a, um, a surge in the majority of January and then probably a little bit of a flattening and dipping after January. Um, you know, we had predicted, I had predicted even, that we would see the sudden surge actually the week between Christmas and New Year. So I was one or two days off. Um, but uh, yeah, we're going to see a sudden increase. Um, we will not see hospitalizations like it was a year ago. A year ago on January 8th, we had 500 patients in the hospital. We're, we're not going to see that kind of, of hospitalization rate uh, because of vaccinations. But, um, but we won't see it dip again probably until late January. Do you have any idea of how many of the new cases are due to Omicron or what's actually driving this surge? We don't have those numbers yet, but I would tell you, you know, my speculation on this is a majority of it's Omicron. Um, it's so highly infectious. Um, it's uh, clearly probably the dominant virus or variant already in this county, but I don't have those statistics yet. Those usually follow. How is Omicron different from Delta? Well, it's certainly far more infectious than Delta was. There is some speculation, we don't know for sure, that a majority of the cases will be milder than Delta, but um, I'm not sure that there's scientific proof to that yet, but that's what we're hoping for. But I will tell you, seeing this sudden increase in hospitalizations uh, has us concerned, without a doubt. To that end, Scripps has previously reported having staffing shortages. Is that still the case? And do you think it's going to possibly impact your ability to meet the need? Every hospital has staffing shortages right now. There's a huge amount of burnout, uh, fatigue uh, that, you know, our, our people have been fighting COVID every day for the last two years. Um, and, and we're seeing that as a national trend. That's just not a San Diego trend. And it's certainly not just a Scripps trend. We'll try to find a way, obviously, of meeting our community's need, but it will, it will be stretching resources without a doubt. Have you had to implement any kind of new plans in order to, to meet it currently? Well, what we will have to do is monitor our activity, our surgical activity and elective admissions. So if the census uh, gets much higher than this, obviously, we may have to slow down on other hospitalizations. And I, I think you're aware that there is a huge blood shortage right now anyway. Um, I think that's driven by not as many people donating blood. Uh, and, and normally this time of the year, there's a decrease in blood donations. So that's already impacting um, us on, on everything from the trauma side to the elective surgery side. So we're deeply concerned about a shortage of blood. And obviously, we're concerned about an increase in COVID um, hospitalizations. As I mentioned off the top, a lot of people are looking to get tested during the holiday season. Is Scripps seeing a huge spike in these type of requests for tests? No, I wouldn't say that we're seeing a huge increase. I think the county is providing really significant resources to be able to do a lot of testing. So, um, I, you know, we haven't seen a spike in the test, but I would imagine if we see the positivity rate continue in this direction, we will see an increase in testing. If people are having trouble getting a rapid test, what would you recommend that they do? Well, if they have symptoms, you know, they need to contact their you know, healthcare provider and the healthcare provider can arrange for them to get a PCA test or something like that. Um, if they're, you know, asymptomatic, um, you know, the best thing to do is shop around, call around to CVS and Walgreens and all of those to see if they have a supply 
Um, one day they may be out, the next day they may have a supply coming in. And, and uh, with the, the president's pledge to be able to make uh, testing available, um, I think that they, we will see a sudden increase in the supply somewhere in January, probably not until mid to late January, but I think we'll see it in January. But right now I get that call all the time. Um, we obviously can do a PCA test in the hospital. You can go to the county um, and get a test. It will not be a rapid test. Um, and then it's just a matter of looking around and shopping to find the, uh, the over-the-counter test at this point. As we've seen more people try and get tested and we're seeing this increased surge, are you also seeing an increased demand for people looking to get their boosters during the holiday season? Not as much as we would like. Um, we certainly saw right when boosters were made available, um, we saw an increase, obviously, in, in people wanting to get the boosters for the first time. And then it seemed to drop off a little bit. Um, and then, of course, as people prepared for uh, traveling over the holidays, we saw a slight increase uh, in people wanting to get boosters. But we are concerned that um, we haven't been able to give as many boosters as we really would like right now. And it really is important for everybody to not only have their their you know first uh, J and J shot um, with a, a booster of, of one of the other shots probably, or uh, with the two uh, dose Moderna and Pfizer getting that third uh, booster. That's really really important with Omicron in particular. Amidst all this news, we did get a little bit of good news last week. The FDA provided emergency authorization of Pfizer's new oral COVID-19 treatment. What do we know about this new drug? Well, we knew that it is an ambulatory drug, so that it may help. It's an antiviral. And so um, our, our actually spoke with our pharmacy people today, and, and they're gearing up for that uh, now as well. So we don't have the drug yet, but we should shortly for um, patients, certainly in the hospital, and then it will be available, I'm sure, in January for people with a prescription. So that will help as an antiviral, similar to what Tamiflu did for influenza. Um, so we're hopeful. And as we come up on New Year's Eve, what advice can you give to listeners to really stay safe? Well, you know, it's the traditional advice. Um, certainly get your vaccinations. That is the best protection. Um, many of the people with vaccinations will probably see a mild case of uh, covid uh, those without uh, vaccinations take a much, much higher risk of serious illness and potentially hospitalizations. I will tell you that uh, by far a majority of the patients in the hospital were not vaccinated and a majority of the people who have, have died uh, were not vaccinated. So the advice first, number one, get that vaccination. Number two, if you've been vaccinated, make sure you get that booster. Uh, number three, wear that mask. Um, you know, we have regulations right now that require masking indoors again, I would wear a mask most of the time right now, and not, not the cloth masks. A single layer cloth mask will do you no good whatsoever. You need to wear a surgical grade type mask or multi-layered cloth mask uh, or something more significant than that um, to, to protect yourselves. And, I, you know, I've been out a little bit in the community, not as much as many people are, and I'm seeing an awful lot of people not wearing masks. So vaccination and masking is the best protection. I've been speaking with Chris Van Gorder, the CEO of Scripps Health. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Despite a surge in case rates from the Omicron variant this past weekend was still one of the busiest for flight travel, but it was met with trip cancellations as the virus spread among flight crews. More than 2,000 flights were canceled around the nation over the weekend, and another 700 flights were canceled just this morning. Some of the airlines impacted by the cancellations were JetBlue, Delta Airlines, United Airlines, and American Airlines. Joining us to discuss the situation at the San 
Diego International Airport is Senior Communications Specialist for the San Diego County Regional Airport Authority, Sabrina LaPiccolo. Sabrina, welcome. Hi, good morning. Thanks. So can you tell us about the turnout at the San Diego International Airport over the holiday weekend? Well, we are anticipating about 1 million passengers coming and going from San Diego International Airport, and that's between December 17th and January 3rd. So, uh, so far, we have seen about 556,000 passengers coming and going from the airport, and obviously we do have a few more days to to see if we get up to that, that million number. Thousands of flights have been canceled due to the spread of this virus, and those cancellations are spilling over into the work week here. Any advice for what travelers should do as they uh, plan out their trip? Yeah, you know, traveling uh, during the holidays can can be stressful, and then adding on some of these cancellations and delays is is sure to not make the travel season that pleasurable. However, if you are going to be traveling, we suggest just checking in with your airline um, before you arrive to the airport. Just understand, you know, if your flight is delayed, uh, how long it's going to be delayed, and and just make arrangements that way. You know, that's really going to be the best advice. And then I think uh, also, you know, just understand that the airlines are just trying to get everybody to their location uh, as safe as possible. And, and we at the airport just want to make sure that, you know, we're, we're supporting the passengers and the airlines and ensuring that everything that we can do, you know, from a health and safety perspective, um, doing our advanced cleaning and, and social distancing, if possible, um, you know, just understand that we're all trying to uh, do the best we can and get everybody to their destination safely. So, you know, a little humility and, and understanding is greatly appreciated as well. And again, despite the rise in case numbers, this was still one of the busiest travel weekends of the year. Compared to last year, have the number of travelers coming in and out of the airport during the holidays increased? Yes. So, you know, really since uh, March of 2021 this year, uh, we've been seeing a slow increase of passengers. And if, you know, if you remember, uh, that's kind of when the vaccine was becoming more available and and people were getting uh, vaccinated. And so, you know, we've really been seeing slowly but surely our numbers climb and, and especially on those holiday travel times. So, you know, again, this is a, this is about a 25% increase over last year passenger numbers, um, but it's still 20% uh, decrease over 2019 numbers. So again, you know, we're, we're definitely seeing more passengers than we saw last year, but still not as many as 2019. So we're still not back to the pre-pandemic levels. <laughs> No, no. And, you know, and I think that that's, uh, there's a combination of reasons for that. You know, partly it's because people just don't feel comfortable yet and and aren't doing a lot of the air traveling. But then also, you know, with everything happening with the airlines, um, routes, you know, have either been suspended or, um, you know, just haven't returned back to San Diego. Or, you know, we actually have got new destinations, but we don't have the quite the frequency that perhaps we used to have uh, in 2019. So, you know, it, it's sort of a, a combination of of not being quite up to the amount of flights or seats that we had pre-pandemic, um, but also, you know, we have gained, you know, a few destinations and, and some additional flights that way. But again, you know, people just um, aren't traveling as much as they used to. What safety protocols are in place at the San Diego International Airport for travelers and flight crews uh, to ensure safety as COVID-19 cases are on the rise in the county? 
Yeah. You know, much like, like everywhere else, we were one of, you know, the first to be able to start providing a lot of the health and safety measures um, at the airport, you know, very early on in 2020. So uh, we have increased cleaning or we're cleaning around the clock and getting a lot of those high touch points. Uh, We have um, social distancing stickers and reminders, uh, seat separation signage, um, things like that, you know, just to, to remind people to social distance as much as possible, uh, plexiglass stanchions. And then, of course, masks are required while on airport property. That mandate uh, is a federal mandate, and it's been extended a couple different times, but that is still in place. And, and so everybody that is on airport property or going on the airplane will have to have a mask. And do you have any sense of how the thousands of flights canceled over the weekend might impact flights this week? Yeah, you know, I mean, anytime that there's uh, cancellation or delays, it has a ripple effect, right? So, um, you know, we, we have been seeing quite a few of cancellation and delays. And I think, uh, again, the best advice that we can give is just to be in touch with your airline, understand, you know, what's going on and, and the reason for the cancellations and your options. And if you are traveling in and out of the San Diego International Airport, there are a few changes to parking that you'd mentioned uh, before. Tell us about that. Yeah, so well, we're very excited. Uh, construction for the new Terminal 1 has begun. And, um, you know, right now there's not too many passenger impacts, but starting January 3rd, uh, we'll start to see some impacts to our parking. So on January 3rd, the cell phone lot will be relocated to the Terminal 2 parking lot on McCain Road. So if you happen to be picking up uh, any of your loved ones or friends, family uh, from the airport, just be advised that the cell phone lot starting January 3rd will be relocated. And then also uh, beginning January 10th, we'll be reducing the parking in front of Terminal 1. Uh, so it will only have about 500 spaces. Um, so you know, parking in front of Terminal 1 will be limited. Uh, anybody that's wanting to park at the airport, we strongly suggest getting reservations uh, on our website, which is sand.org. And that way you can uh, plan to have a space and the parking reservations are for Terminal 2 parking plaza. And if uh, you happen to be flying out of Terminal 1, but parking in Terminal 2, we'll have inter-terminal buses that can transfer people. And then also we're bringing back the valet parking option. So valet parking will be an option for anybody flying out of Terminal 1 or Terminal 2 starting January 10th as well. I've been speaking to Senior Communications Specialist for the San Diego County Regional Airport Authority, Sabrina Lopiccolo. Sabrina, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Happy holidays. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Christina Kim. Maureen Kavanaugh is off today. Thousands of people across the county get CalFresh, commonly known as food stamps, to help them buy food. But KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser says the program regularly pushes out people who are still eligible for the extra money. Pescado. Fish. Well, salmon. Maria Gonzalez de Ochoa stands outside her El Cajon apartment and talks about what she likes to buy with her CalFresh food stamps. 
We like the good stuff when it is available. The 74-year-old house cleaner finally got on the program in 2019. It took them a while to reply, but bless be God, they did accept me. But I only lasted a mere two months. Within a matter of months, her elation had turned to disappointment. Gonzalez de Ochoa was told her benefits had stopped because a report was missing. However, she says that's not right. I called and asked them if they had received it, and they said yes. But towards the end of December, I called them, and they said that it had been suspended due to that paper. Right now, under the CalFresh program, which distributes food stamps paid for by the federal government, an individual will receive $234 a month, a temporary increase due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But this money comes with a number of strings attached. Every six months, recipients have to provide written proof of any and all changes to their employment status, family size, and living arrangements. They also have to submit to an interview, either in person or on the phone. If any of these steps are missed, the money stops. Households are six times more likely to leave the program in these months in which they have to jump through one of these paperwork hoops. Matt Unrath, a research fellow at UC Berkeley's California Policy Lab, says the complicated process regularly drives out CalFresh recipients who are still eligible for the program. In San Diego County and across the state, between half and three quarters of the recipients who left the program were still eligible for the benefits, according to the study. We think that this has to do with um, understaffing and a lack of training. Anahid Bracky is CEO of the San Diego Hunger Coalition, a nonprofit that helps people apply for CalFresh. What we're seeing is a little bit too much comfort with how much people suffer trying to go through the process. San Diego County is doing what it can to help recipients, says Rick Wayne, the county's director for self-sufficiency programs. We do send it to them by mail with instructions on how to complete it and where to send it back. Um, we include a, uh, an envelope with uh, free postage on it. We also send all of our customers a text message reminder uh, when their uh, report is due. That message also has a link uh, where the customer can um, actually complete it electronically. But he says some people stop their benefits while they're still eligible because of, quote, individual choice. There have been some temporary changes to the program during COVID-19. For six months, no forms were required, and the interview requirement has been suspended, but will likely return in July. Also next year, households with only elderly or disabled individuals who have no earned income will not have to submit forms. But Unrath, the co-author of the Berkeley study, wants more. He says all recipients should only file paperwork once a year. It's going to be cheaper for government because you don't actually have to administer uh, these uh, recertifications as frequently. And it you know, saves households a lot of time and stress. And for the most part, you know, that type of reform would um, more likely benefit a bunch of eligible households than uh, allow ineligible households to remain enrolled. But that would take an act of Congress. Claire Tregesser. KPBS News.
This time of year, many of us are reflecting and maybe thinking about people who have been kind to us and whether we can be kinder to others. The UCLA's Bedari Kindness Institute studies kindness and the impulse to be kind. Its director, anthropologist Daniel Fessler, spoke to California Report host Saul Gonzalez about what it means to be kind. Here's that interview. Professor, can you start with a simple definition of kindness? So we have sort of a working definition at the Kindness Institute, which is that kindness is defined as as actions that are intended solely to benefit the recipient. The actor doesn't have any ulterior motive. The other person is an ends uh, in themselves. They aren't a means to an end. So an act of kindness doesn't involve a transaction or some kind of quid pro quo exchange. Uh, If people have as the goal some kind of payoff in their conscious minds, then we define that as something other than kindness. It can be manipulation, it can be negotiation, it can be strategy, but it isn't kindness. I think of myself as a fairly nice guy and polite fellow, but if I say please and thank you and ask strangers about their day, is that really an act of kindness or is it just etiquette and manners? I would say that there is an entire spectrum of kindness from actions that provide a relatively small benefit to another party to actions that are remarkably altruistic and provide an enormous benefit to another party. And showing somebody else that you respect them, that they have dignity and value in your eyes, that's an act of kindness, right? You know, if you're asking the barista, you know, how's your day going? And it's not because you're hoping for, you know, an extra shot in the latte. It's just because you want that person to know that you see them and you value them as as another human being. Then that is an act of kindness. You've really championed this idea that you can transmit kindness, that it's a kind of very good contagion. Can you talk more about that? Sure, absolutely. So this happens every once in a while at uh, drive through restaurants, right, where someone will spontaneously decide to pay for the meal of the party in the car behind them who are strangers, right? So you pull forward to, to pay for your meal and the cashier informs you, you know, those folks, those nice folks in the car ahead of you paid for your meal, right? But a number of investigators, as well as some group of folks that I've had the opportunity to collaborate with, we, we've all documented that in fact, This kind of contagious kindness, if you will, doesn't just involve emulating the actions that one has observed or benefited from, but that, in fact, people experience a fairly general motivation to make the world a better place, to to do good things, and that you can give them opportunities to provide charitable donations or time and, and effort for, you know, some philanthropic cause that have nothing to do with the actions that they've observed other than that they're all in the general category of helping someone and being pro-social. And so ripple effects can occur where kindness spreads outwards. And the same is very likely to be true for uh, the opposite of kindness, where if there are signs of disorder and selfish behavior, people are more likely to behave selfishly themselves. And what about the people who are no doubt listening who might be kindness skeptics? They're afraid that if they show kindness or accept it, they'll be taken advantage of in some way. There's a lot of evidence that kindness is subjectively rewarding. People feel good when they are truly kind towards others. And that isn't just at the level of subjective experience. It benefits one at the level of both mental and physical health. And this is not at all surprising from an evolutionary perspective, because if you experience the world around you as fundamentally cooperative, then it means that you don't need to be 
in emergency mode. You don't need to be on guard all the time. And this is a recipe for a short and unhappy life. And it's very well documented in the medical literature that this is the case, right? Um, at people's psychological well-being and importantly, their physical well-being uh, with regard to all kinds of health outcomes is improved by their being kinder to others. And finally, I guess if we want to be kinder people, we have to understand that it's a journey or project that has no end, right? That is correct. You know, I, I worked for a number of years in Indonesia, and there's a, a saying in Indonesia, which is that um, there is no ivory which is not cracked, right? That is, humans are fallible. We are imperfect creatures, unsurprisingly. And what that means is that None of us is ever going to behave in an entirely perfect and consistent manner in our expectations of others, in our emotional reactions to others, and in our subsequent behavior. And so, to a certain extent, being kind towards yourself is part of the project, right? Being forgiving of your own imperfections and recognizing that's, you know, natural selection produces jury-rigged kludge-like machines. And that's what we are. We are a compilation of a whole bunch of funky adaptations produced by natural selection and cultural evolution. And understanding ourselves that way, we can say, okay, well, you know what? That person's not perfect. I can give them the benefit of the doubt. I can look beyond their you know, stumbles today. And I can do the same for myself, right? That is, I can always think about how I could have been kinder. And instead of beating myself up about that, I can say, well, okay, I'm going to learn from that experience and take that to the next interaction where I'm going to try and err on the side of, of optimism and prosociality. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Christina Kim with Jade Heineman. Many San Diegans have gone through a period of football withdrawal in the past few years. Since the Chargers left in 2016, some have switched allegiances to the local Aztecs or an out-of-town NFL team. But that old fan feeling has been hard to come by. But now, we can take inspiration from one San Diegan who spread his love of NFL football across the country and across the years. Former North County Times journalist Brian Gashu achieved his goal of attending 500 NFL games, and now he's written a book about his journey. The book is called The Grass is Always Greener, One Football Fan's Quest to Attend 500 NFL Games. Author Brian Gashu spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh about his journey and the book. Here's that interview. And thank you, Maureen. It's good to be with you. Now, lots of people are completely happy watching football on TV. What is it about attending the games that makes it special for you? Well, when you're there, you get the whole experience. 
not just what they fit into a box. And what does that whole experience do for you? What do you see that we don't see when we're watching it on TV? Uh, you don't get the full excitement of the fans and, you know, just the, uh, the energy, the electricity that, that, uh, uh, that excitement generates. And what made you decide to set the goal of attending 500 games? Well, it started out as something I was doing with uh, baseball and football. I was trying to go to all those venues um, where they played their games on natural grass because that's my preferred surface. And I found with baseball, it's like I could do a one and done. But with football, I just love the, the game so much. I said, no, you know, I just want to keep going back. I, I'm not, I'm not going to set any limit on how often I visit. And that's when the number 500 popped into my head. I thought that would be a really nice challenge to shoot for. Now, this goal wouldn't be an easy one for anyone, but you're living with cerebral palsy and you use a wheelchair. So I'm wondering, did people try to talk you out of this, of all this travel and expense? No, I always got encouragement. And uh, uh, that stems uh, directly from how I was raised by my parents. Uh, they made sure that I'd be as independent as possible. And uh, thankfully, I, I do use a wheelchair, but that's generally only when I go to games. For the most part, I travel on crutches. So I'm fortunate that while I do have cerebral palsy, I have a relatively mild case of it. You talked a little bit about the way you were raised. Your love of football started during childhood. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? When I was a kid, uh, football was the one sport I could play, you know, and um, because thanks to uh, some operations I had when I was very young, I was able to get around without crutches for much of my childhood. And um, uh, being able to play football in the neighborhood with the kids I grew up with, that was just such a great shot of self-esteem. Made me feel so good that I could uh, do something on par with them. And does watching the game, was, does watching the game also make you feel like that? Uh, watching the game reminds me of those memories. So I get to appreciate the game being played at its highest level while also being reminded of my memories playing it. Now, did the Chargers leaving San Diego make a big impact on you? Yes, I was sad to see them go. I, I really felt a deal could have been made for them to stay, but I wasn't going to let that keep me from uh, uh, watching the NFL. After all, I didn't, I didn't start out a Chargers fan to begin with. I was a Miami Dolphins fan for uh, much of my life. Now, when you attended your 500th game in 2017, you weren't in San Diego, but you made it a point to wear a San Diego hat. Why is that? Well, the Chargers had just left San Diego, and I didn't want the NFL or anybody else to forget San Diego. <laughs> and you want San Diego to become a, an a NFL city again? Oh, absolutely. I do believe it'll happen eventually. I think San Diego is simply too big a city for the NFL to ignore. And I think if we have a venue that, that they think would work for them, I, I think they would definitely consider coming back maybe a few games here and there and then eventually maybe a team again. But it may take a while. It could be 10, 20 years. Who knows? I, I just hope I'm around when it happens. What do you think having a professional football team does for a city? Well, it can be a, a strong sense of civic pride. You know, and uh, something for, for people to feel good about and something for them to gather for. I mean, look at the way the Padres have drawn fans at Petco Park. I mean, that, that, uh, that spirit is still there for them. 
You know, Brian, after you achieved that goal of attending 500 NFL games, what made you want to write a book about it? Well, for many years, people had been saying I should write a book about it. You know, my experiences and uh, and at first I, you know, dismissed it. I say I'm I'm too busy, you know, going to the games. I don't have time to write about it. <laughs> but uh, the more I thought about it, the more I thought it'd be a good idea. Plus, I thought, who knows, maybe it might inspire others to maybe do something similar or just something that shows them or reminds them that a, a disability, you know, and need not deter somebody from pursuing their dreams because this was mine and I didn't let my disability stop me in any way. Now, I know you have a new goal now after that 500 NFL games is over with. Tell us about that. What's your new goal? My new goal is to see every team, uh, NFL team play uh, at least 25 games or 100 quarters, which I think sounds cooler. (laughs) And and of course, the, the ground rules remain the same. Um, every game has to be played on natural grass, and uh, but there's a nice benefit to it. Uh, to, unlike uh, my goal of seeing 500, where every game can only count once, we're trying to see every team play 25 games, occasionally I have two teams where I need to meet that goal, so I get two credits for one game. And in fact, uh, just last month in Pittsburgh, I saw the Steelers play the Bears, and it was my 25th game for both teams. So, I mean, it doesn't get better than that. <laughs> a nice two-for-one deal. Your 500-game quest made you pretty famous. You've been featured on ESPN. What's it like getting recognized as you head for the next game? Oh, it, it's nice. But, I mean, um, I, I'd rather people focus on what I'm doing than who I am. I think I think that's the more important thing. Uh, I'm, I'm pursuing a dream. and. I'm um, I'm enjoying it uh, as much as possible, and I like it if I can encourage others to do the same. And the ticket stubs from your 500-game journey are now part of football history, aren't they? Yes, they reside in the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. And why did you decide to donate them? Well, I wanted to, I made the hall an offer of uh, uh, the memorabilia I had uh, collected uh, during my travels. And they said that what interested them most were the ticket stubs, because while they already have uh, uh, the programs I do, they uh, felt they were a bit short in ticket stubs. And so they asked for mine. And now they're even more of a collector item because it's next to impossible to find ticket stubs to games these days. Right. They're a dying breed. Yes, you're absolutely right. Now, what do you hope readers take away from your book? I hope that they take away that any dream is possible if you um, are willing to do what it takes to pursue it and um, don't let people talk you out of it, you know, if it really touches your heart. Well, I've been speaking with Brian Gushu. He's a former San Diego journalist, and he's the author of a new book, The Grass is Always Greener, One Football Fan's Quest to Attend 500 NFL Games. Brian, thanks so much for sharing. Thank you, Maureen. It was a pleasure. The Japanese Friendship Garden's Inomari Pavilion, with its gently cascading waterfall, provides the perfect soundscape for a visit to Nuno, the language of textiles exhibit. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with Chad Patton, managing director of Material Things, which created the exhibit and is the international distributor of Nuno Textiles. 
So Chad, explain to us where we are here. We're at the Japanese Friendship Garden in the Inamori Pavilion, which is in the lower garden. And this is where we were doing the Nuno exhibit. And explain what Nuno is. Nuno is a textile design company. It was started in 1983 by Junichi Arai, who's the father of contemporary Japanese textiles, and Reiko Sudo, who continues as the director of Nuno. And it's small lot production done in little family looms all over Japan. A lot of them on jacquard, old jacquard machines. These family-run mills look like a garage with a rusty machine in the middle of it. And they're, um, they've really done a lot to revitalize the Japanese textile industry because many young people in these families didn't particularly want to continue the family business until they had some more exciting possibilities with Nuno. And what is this exhibit here? This one is basically, Nuno's about 35 years old, and this is just an overview of the textiles and techniques they've developed over the last 35 years, some of their most important textiles. And some of your fabrics have been used in films that people are probably quite familiar with. Yes, we're used by a lot of Hollywood costume designers. We've been used in movies such as Memoirs of a Geisha. This one was used in, actually, in Ghost in the Shell, which was a recent Scarlett Johansson movie. This fabric is called coal, and it's a monofilament, which is just a basically one-thread polyester. And it's tough. It's amazingly tough, but it's slippery. So when you seam it, along the seams, the fabric can slip a little bit, and you get a little bit of a gap. So after it's woven, it is actually waterproofed. And the waterproofing isn't to keep water off of it. It's to lock the, the weave together. And um, this was used in Ghost in the Shell for the geisha costumes. It kind of has a shiny lacquer-like finish. In um, Ghost in the Shell, it was laser cut. People may not think of fabric as art because something that has a functional purpose in life is sometimes not considered art. So mm -hmm. explain why there should be an exhibit of fabrics. Well, it's complicated. Fabric should be functional. Nuno's philosophy about fabric is that they do not design a fabric for a specific purpose. They, they believe that that should be left up to the person who buys it, and that the person who buys it, how they use the fabric is part of the creative process. The creative process isn't ended until the fabric is used, and that's Nuno's philosophy. It, it's just like, is design art? Basically, that's the, 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 the dilemma. I personally think that design is art, but with design, you're thinking about purpose. With art, in its purest form, you're not thinking about purpose, and that's the difference. And who are the people who are creating these fabrics for you? Everyone who works at Nuno is a designer. Everyone who works at Nuno is a designer. They have about 17 of them. Reiko Sudo is the guiding force. She's the lead designer, and everything ends up going through her. I would say she probably personally designs 70% of Nuno's fabric. The other 30% are by the other designers in the company. The company's 35 years old and they've hired over that period. So you have designers who've been working for 20, 30 years. You have designers who are relatively new and, and young designers. And that keeps things fresh in the company. And what can people expect coming to this exhibit? It is interesting because it's an overview. And what it's showing is how the company has evolved and the changes, especially, I find particularly interesting the changes in technique and technology, including the fibers that are used. When Nuno started, it was almost all natural fibers, linen, cotton, 
the colors were more muted, what you think of traditional Japanese fabrics. And it's evolved over the years. We're doing a, we do a lot of research into um, materials technologies and developing new fabrics with new fibers with chemical companies. And so you can see the evolution of textile design and it's Nuno's evolution, but it's also just how textile design on, on a whole has changed over the last 30 years. And I think Nuno has been a driving force in those changes. Now, a lot of exhibits are with things behind glass that you can't touch, mm. but this exhibit looks like you can touch the fabrics. Is this true? Well, someone, there's little signs every so often that says, do not touch. But if a person was to happen to touch it, it wouldn't bother me. Basically, yes, we, we set it up like this so people could wander through them because you do have to experience textiles. And so it, 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 it isn't a static kind of art. So not that we encourage everyone to put their hands all over it, but the, um, often in Nuno exhibits, they do something called a touch panel wall. And actually there is one here, but we're, because of COVID, we're not encouraging people to touch that too much either. But yes, fabrics are meant to be touched. And these are not behind glass, so you have a fabric where you've actually woven feathers in so people can really see that up close. Yes, that's important. This is one of Nuno's best known fabrics. It's called Feather Flurries, and it's a jacquard double weave silk. And basically what happens is the jacquard fabric is woven on the jacquard machine and it makes pockets. Before the pocket is sealed, they stop the jacquard machine and put feathers in by hand between the two layers. They restart the machine and it seals the pocket. And so to weave this every six inches or so, you're stopping the, the loom, which actually is really rough on these old jacquard looms. So we've lost many factories who refuse to do it for us anymore. But, the, but that's, so if you look inside each of these the, inside the fabric, there are actually feathers sealed in pockets. And then actually another example while we're here, Nuno does a lot of embroidery and they use, it's called a steering wheel embroidery machine. And what a steering wheel embroidery machine does, it allows the operator to operate everything with, with his feet and then do the intricate patterns with a steering wheel. So you can do much more intricate patterns. There's only a few of these machines in the world. Some of the fabrics, what's, they're very beautiful, but they're subtle and you do have to see them up close a lot of the, the wovens. Also, you're looking at a lot of texture and how it's woven in the, and the pattern of the weave, and you can only see that up close. Talk a little bit about how you got involved with Nuno, because you are an American who right. went over there and stayed for quite a while. I lived in Japan about 30 years. I went to high school, college, and most, a lot of my career in Japan, I was creative director of an ad agency in Japan, and Nuno was in my neighborhood in Tokyo, and um, a very close, a friend of mine was, was actually dating Reiko, the head designer. Well, they're no longer together, but I stayed friends with Reiko, and we've been close friends for about 30 years, and I was talking about eventually returning to San Diego, because I'm from here, and Reiko said to me, well, why don't you handle Nuno overseas? And I had never thought about doing anything like that, and that, about 20 years ago, we uh, started exploring that, and we've, we've been doing that for about 20 years. All right, well, I want to thank you very much for talking to You're about welcome. Nuno. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Chad Patton. Nuno, the language of textiles, runs through February at the Japanese Friendship Garden's Inomarie Pavilion. To see the fabrics discussed, go to Beth's Cinema Junkie blog at kpbs.org.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.